This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To learn more, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by J. M. D. Meikljohn Preface to the First Edition, 1781 Read by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, January 2007. Human reason, in one sphere of its cognition, is called upon to consider questions which it cannot decline as they are presented by its own nature, but which it cannot answer as they transcend every faculty of the mind. It falls into this difficulty without any fault of its own. It begins with principles, which cannot be dispensed with in the field of experience, and the truth and sufficiency of which are, at the same time, ensured by experience. With these principles it rises, in obedience to the laws of its own nature, to ever higher and more remote conditions. But it quickly discovers that in this way its labors must remain ever incomplete, because new questions never cease to present themselves and thus it finds itself compelled to have recourse to principles which transcend the region of experience, while they are regarded by common sense without distrust. It thus falls into confusion and contradictions, from which it conjectures the presence of latent errors which, however, it is unable to discover, because the principles it employs, transcending the limits of experience, cannot be tested by that criterion. The area of these endless contests is called metaphysic. Time was when she was the queen of all the sciences, and, if we take the will for the deed, she certainly deserved, so far as regards the high importance of her object matter, this title of honor. Now it is the fashion of the time to heap contempt and scorn upon her, and the matron mourns forlorn and forsaken like Hecuba. Quote, Modo maxima rerum, to generis natic potens, nunc trio uxot onopa. Ovid Metamorphosis. Translation. But late on the pinnacle of fame, strong in my many sons, now exiled, penniless. End translation and footnote. At first, her government under the administration of the dogmatist was an absolute despotism. But, as the legislative continued to show traces of the ancient barbaric rule, her empire gradually broke up, and the intestine wars introduced the reign of anarchy, while the skeptics, like nomadic tribes who hate a permanent habitation and settled mode of living, attacked from time to time those who had organized themselves into civil communities. But their number was very happily small, and thus they could not entirely put a stop to the exertions of those who persisted in raising new edifices, although on no settled or uniform plan. In recent times the hope dawned upon us of seeing those disputes settled, and the legitimacy of her claims established by a kind of physiology of the human understanding, that of the celebrated Locke. But it was found that although it was affirmed that this so-called queen could not refer her descent to any higher source than that of common experience, 
a circumstance which necessarily brought suspicion on her claims, as this genealogy was incorrect, she persisted in the advancement of her claims to sovereignty. Thus, metaphysics necessarily fell back into the antiquated and rotten constitution of dogmatism, and again became obnoxious to the contempt from which efforts had been made to save it. At present, as all methods, according to the general persuasion, have been tried in vain, there reigns naught but weariness and complete indifferentism, the mother of chaos and night in the scientific world, but at the same time the source of, or at least the prelude to, the recreation and reinstallation of a science, when it has fallen into confusion, obscurity, and disuse from ill-directed effort. For it is in reality vain to profess indifference in regard to such inquiries, the object of which cannot be indifferent to humanity. Besides, these pretended indifferentists, however much they may try to disguise themselves by the assumption of a popular style and by changes on the language of the schools, unavoidably fall into metaphysical declarations and propositions, which they profess to regard with so much contempt. At the same time, this indifference, which has arisen in the world of science, and which relates to that kind of knowledge which we should wish to see destroyed the last, is a phenomenon that well deserves our attention and reflection. It is plainly not the effect of the levity, but of the matured judgment of the age, which refuses to be any longer entertained with illusory knowledge. It is, in fact, a call to reason again to undertake the most laborious of all tasks, that of self-examination, and to establish a tribunal which may secure it in its well-grounded claims, while it pronounces against all baseless assumptions and pretensions, not in an arbitrary manner, but according to its own eternal and unchangeable laws. This tribunal is nothing less than the critical investigation of pure reason. I do not mean by this a criticism of books and systems, but a critical inquiry into the faculty of reason, with reference to the cognitions to which it strives to attain without the aid of experience. In other words, the solution of the question regarding the possibility or impossibility of metaphysics, and the determination of the origin as well as of the extent and limits of this science. All this must be done on the basis of principles. The path, the only one now remaining, has been entered upon by me, and I flatter myself that I have, in this way, discovered the cause of, and consequently the mode of removing, all the errors which have hitherto set reason at variance with itself, in the sphere of non-empirical thought. I have not returned an evasive answer to the questions of reason by alleging the inability and limitation of the faculties of the mind. I have, on the contrary, examined them completely in the light of principles, and, after having discovered the cause of the doubts and contradictions into which reason fell, have solved them to its perfect satisfaction. It is true these questions have not been solved as dogmatism, in its vain fancies and desires, had expected. For it can only be satisfied by the exercise of magical arts, and of these I have no knowledge. But neither do these come within the compass of our mental powers, and it was the duty of philosophy to destroy the illusions which had their origin in misconceptions, 
whatever darling hopes and valued expectations may be ruined by its explanations. My chief aim in this work has been thoroughness, and I make bold to say that there is not a single metaphysical problem that does not find its solution, or at least a key to its solution, here. Pure reason is a perfect unity, and therefore, if the principle presented by it proved to be insufficient for the solution of even a single one of these questions to which the very nature of reason gives birth, we must reject it, as we could not be perfectly certain of its insufficiency in the case of the others. While I say this, I think I see upon the countenance of the reader signs of dissatisfaction mingled with contempt when he hears declarations which sound so boastful and extravagant, and yet they are beyond comparison more moderate than those advanced by the commonest author of the commonest philosophical program, in which the dogmatist professes to demonstrate the simple nature of the soul, or the necessity of a primal being. Such a dogmatist promises to extend human knowledge beyond the limits of possible experience, while I humbly confess that this is completely beyond my power. Instead of any such attempt, I confine myself to the examination of reason alone and its pure thought, and I do not need to seek far for the sum total of its cognition, because it has its seat in my own mind. Besides, common logic presents me with a complete and systematic catalogue of all the simple operations of reason, and it is my task to answer the question of how far reason can go, without the material presented and the aid furnished by experience. So much for the completeness and thoroughness necessary in the execution of the present task. The aims set before us are not arbitrarily proposed, but are imposed upon us by the nature of cognition itself. The above remarks relate to the matter of a critical inquiry. As regards the form, there are two indispensable conditions which anyone who undertakes so difficult a task as that of a critique of pure reason is bound to fulfill. These conditions are certitude and clearness. As regards certitude, I have fully convinced myself that, in this sphere of thought, opinion is perfectly inadmissible, and that everything which bears the least semblance of a hypothesis must be excluded, as of no value in such discussions. For it is a necessary condition of every cognition that is to be established upon a priori grounds that it shall be held to be absolutely necessary. Much more is this the case with an attempt to determine all pure a priori cognition and to furnish the standard, and consequently an example, of all apodictic parentheses, philosophical and parentheses, certitude. Whether I have succeeded in what I profess to do, it is for the reader to determine. It is the author's business merely to adduce grounds and reasons, without determining what influence these ought to have on the mind of his judges. But, lest anything he may have said may become the innocent cause of doubt in their minds, or tend to weaken the effect which his arguments might otherwise produce, he may be allowed to point out those passages which may occasion mistrust or difficulty, although these do not concern the main purpose of the present work. He does this solely with the view of removing from the mind of the reader any doubts which might affect his judgment of the work as a whole, and in regard to its ultimate aim. 
I know no investigations more necessary for a full insight into the nature of the faculty which we call understanding, and at the same time for the determination of the rules and limits of its use, than those undertaken in the second chapter of the Transcendental Analytic, under the title of Deduction of the Pure Conceptions of the Understanding. And they have cost me by far the greatest labor, labor which, I hope, will not remain uncompensated. The view there taken, which goes somewhat deeply into the subject, has two sides. The one relates to the objects of the pure understanding, and is intended to demonstrate and to render comprehensible the objective validity of its a priori conceptions. And it forms, for this reason, an essential part of the critique. The other considers the pure understanding itself, its possibility and its powers of cognition that is, from a subjective point of view, and although this exposition is of great importance, it does not belong essentially to the main purpose of the work, because the grand question is, what and how much can reason and understanding, apart from experience, cognize, and not, how is the faculty of thought itself possible? As the latter is an inquiry into the cause of a given effect, and has thus in it some semblance of a hypothesis, although, as I shall show on another occasion, this is really not the fact, it would seem that, in the present instance, I had allowed myself to announce a mere opinion, and that the reader must therefore be at liberty to hold a different opinion. But I beg to remind him that, if my subjective deduction does not produce in his mind the conviction of its certitude at which I aimed, the objective deduction, with which alone the present work is properly concerned, is in every respect satisfactory. As regards clearness, the reader has a right to demand, in the first place, discursive or logical clearness, that is, on the basis of conceptions, and secondly, intuitive or aesthetic clearness, by means of intuitions, that is, by examples or other modes of illustration, in concreto, I have done what I could for the first kind of intelligibility. This was essential to my purpose, and thus became the accidental cause of my inability to do complete justice to the second requirement. I have been almost always at a loss, during the progress of this work, how to settle this question. Examples and illustrations always appeared to me necessary, and, in the first sketch of the critique, naturally fell into their proper places but I very soon became aware of the magnitude of my task, and the numerous problems with which I should be engaged, and, as I perceived that this critical investigation would, even if delivered in the driest scholastic manner, be far from being brief, I found it inadvisable to enlarge it still more with examples and explanations, which are necessary only from a popular point of view. I was induced to take this course from the consideration also that the present work is not intended for popular use, that those devoted to science do not require such helps, although they are always acceptable, and that they would have materially interfered with my present purpose. Abby Terrison remarks with great justice that if we estimate the size of a work not from the number of its pages, but from the time which we require to make ourselves master of it, it may be said of many a book that it would be much shorter if it were not so short. On the other hand, 
as regards the comprehensibility of a system of speculative cognition, connected under a single principle we may say with equal justice. Many a book would have been much clearer if it had not been intended to be so very clear. For explanations and examples and other helps to intelligibility aid us in the comprehension of parts, but they distract the attention, dissipate the mental power of the reader, and stand in the way of his forming a clear conception of the whole, as he cannot attain soon enough to a survey of the system, and the coloring and embellishments bestowed upon it prevent his observing its articulation or organization, which is the most important consideration with him when he comes to judge of its unity and stability. The reader must naturally have a strong inducement to cooperate with the present author, if he has formed the intention of erecting a complete and solid edifice of metaphysical science according to the plan now laid before him. Metaphysics, as here represented, is the only science which admits of completion, and with little labor if it is united in a short time, so that nothing will be left to future generations except the task of illustrating and applying it didactically. For this science is nothing more than the inventory of all that is given us by pure reason, systematically arranged. Nothing can escape our notice. For what reason produces from itself cannot lie concealed, but must be brought to light by reason itself, so soon as we have discovered the common principle of the ideas that we seek. The perfect unity of this kind of cognitions, which are based upon pure conceptions and uninfluenced by any empirical element or any peculiar intuition leading to determinate experience, renders this completeness not only practicable, but also necessary. Tecum habita and nuriquam sitibicuto superlex, Perseus. Translation Dwell within yourself, and you will know how short your household stuff is. And translation and footnote. Such a system of pure speculative reason I hope to be able to publish under the title of Metaphysic of Nature. The content of this work, which will not be half so long, will be very much richer than that of the present critique, which has to discover the sources of this cognition and expose the conditions of its possibility, and at the same time to clear and level a fit foundation for the scientific edifice. In the present work, I look for the patient hearing and impartiality of a judge, and the other, for the goodwill and assistance of a co-laborer. For, however complete the list of principles for this system may be in the critique, the correctness of the system requires that no deduced conceptions should be absent. These cannot be presented a priori, but must be gradually discovered. And, while the synthesis of conceptions has been fully exhausted in the critique, it is necessary that, in the proposed work, the same should be the case with their analysis. But this will be rather an amusement than a labor. End of Critique of Pure Reason, Section 1, Preface to the First Edition, 1781, recorded by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, January 2007.